Father, thank you for being so personal. There's seven billion people on this planet and yet you want to speak to each of us individually. You want a relationship with us. You, you want for our hearts to be constantly open to you. We so often think about our side of the picture, but yet here's a God who's investing continually in his creatures. Lord God, I pray that we would be more firmly and deeply rooted in the amazing love that you have for us today than ever before. May we walk out of here finding our, our nutrition, our thirst quenched in Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Two strangers came into the city of Prague and they began to teach. They were teaching from the Bible and this was frowned upon and before long, they were shut down. They weren't allowed to teach anymore. But they were both artists. And so what they did was they began to paint. And they began to paint two different pictures. The first picture was a picture of a man who was on a horse, a fine steed. He was clothed in the richest of garments. He had uh, crowns on his head. He was accompanied by uh, people that were obviously made him feel very important. So they painted this picture in much detail, and then they painted a second picture, and, and this picture was entirely different. We talked a little bit about it last week. It, w- it was a picture of a man in humble garments riding on a donkey. It was a picture of Jesus. And they displayed these two pictures in the city of Prague side by side. And as people looked at that, it said maybe more than their words could have explained. In fact, it did that specifically for a guy by the name of Hus. Hus was a Catholic priest in Prague, and he was interested in teaching people truth. And as he looked at this picture and he saw the contrast, and he knew what the Catholic Church was like at that point in time, well, he knew what the, the, the Christianity had become like. He said, this is so foreign from who Jesus is. And he wasn't leaving his church behind, but he just began to teach more and more of the pure gospel. He began to point people more and more to the Bible. He was especially a student of John Wycliffe's writings. And John Wycliffe was all about getting the Bible in the common language of the people. And he realized that what people needed was the Bible. And this began to bring trouble into Huss's life, just like it had to the two strangers who were eventually kicked out of the town. What do you do when troubles begin to come in your life? When you experience persecution, when, when things get rough? I mean, life when it's going easy, it's, it, it can be simple to hold our character together, right? When, you know, standing up here is probably the easiest time for me to say, yeah, I'm a really patient, kind, loving person. I, you know, things are good. I'm under the shade of this tree. The wind is blowing. It's nice out here. We're all relaxed, enjoying Jesus' presence. But what about when things get a little more difficult, when, when things grate on us, when we're facing bigger challenges in our life? And, and what about when what the Bible pictures begins to happen on this planet and we face a time of trouble such as the world has never seen? How do we stand in that time? Well, I think, if anywhere, we should look to Jesus, Right? That's what Huss was beginning to more and more do. In fact, later on, he said, he, in writing a letter, he said, I'm confident that at least I've painted a picture of Jesus in people's hearts. And if they'll keep looking at that picture of Jesus, they're going to be okay. Even if I am taken out of the picture. 
Turn with me to Luke chapter uh, 23. In Luke chapter 23, we find Jesus in a moment when he had every excuse to not treat people with love. Luke chapter 23. Uh, this is days after what we talked about last week, where he's on the Mount uh, of Olives. He's riding into Jerusalem. They're shouting hosannas. And he's the one who, as he looks at the city, is weeping over what they've become. He sees this beautiful city and he recognizes that they are a den of, that the temple has become a den of thieves and that they are robbing other nations. They're mistreating people. They're obstructing people being able to come to Jesus. And so he weeps over that city and he sees what's going to happen as a result of their enmity towards the Romans, how that's going to come back on them. And he says, you're going to have an army surrounding you before long. Well, just days later on Thursday, that was Sunday, Days later, on Thursday, verse 26 says this, Now as they led him away, now remember, at this point in time, he has gone through a farce of a trial. He was up all night, prayed to the point where sin was laid on him. He sweat great droplets of blood. Then he goes through this trial, and he's mocked. He's beaten beyond what was legal to beat somebody. He, He was beaten to the point where physically, he's got nothing left. And so he collapses under the weight of that cross as he's carrying it. Verse 26, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. They have to find somebody to help him. But then it goes on to say there's there's people watching this and and most of them are mocking Jesus, but there's a few who who feel this empathy rising up in them. There's a few who have have some sort of human sympathy for the suffering that Jesus is going through. They're not followers of Jesus, but something is moving their hearts. So then a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. Here these women see this suffering and, and they're touched by it. And you know, women are are much better at that. Let's just be honest. I mean, if the girls get a skinned knee, uh, Leah's like, can you take care of it, please? This just breaks my heart too much to see them in pain. I can't clean that out, you know. But for a guy, I don't know. We have harder hearts, unfortunately. We need more time with Jesus than even than uh, maybe than women do. But anyway, we won't go there. Right? So these women are mourning over Jesus because they look at this and they say, he shouldn't be tortured. He shouldn't be going through this. And their hearts are moved and they're weeping. Now, you remember that that what Jesus responded to when he saw the Temple Mount was he cried and everybody else is cheering hosannas. Now look at, again, he's doing the exact opposite. He's, 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 he should be just, you would think being, oh, thank you, and, and he should be crying himself. But look at what he does, verse 28. But Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. For your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, then what will they, what will be done in the dry? He, he looks at, at these women who are weeping. He says, you shouldn't be crying for me. You shouldn't be crying for what I'm going through. What you need to recognize is that you as a city are on a path that's going to result in destruction. And you should be weeping over that. You're, you're rejecting me and, and you're weeping over my physical suffering. But, but you need to recognize that there's 
something terrible coming into your own life if you don't turn to me. It's a fascinating picture because you notice what he says specifically. He says, one, uh, that you'll wish that you hadn't, blessed is the, the woman who's never nursed or born children. You know what began to happen before the destruction of Jerusalem? It's the most terrible thing that I can possibly imagine. That is that people took their own children and ate them because the famine was so bad. Historians tell us that, that things were so out of control in Jerusalem. There was such, because of the fighting between the two, actually was, there was more than two segments, within the Jews themselves, they had fought so much that they depleted their own resources and they didn't have what it took and they were starving. And they turned to eating their own children. It, it's unimaginable what horror they went through. And, and you think about Jesus, he's viewing these things and he's crushed by it. And he says, you need to be crying for what you're going to go through. But then he ties it not just to what they're going to go through, just like in Matthew 24 where the disciples come and they say, okay, so you said that one stone won't be left upon another? Well, tell us when these things will be and when's the end of the world because if the temple's not there, if our religious system isn't going, then that's got to be the end of the world. Everything's tied to that. And Jesus goes on to meld the two together, the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming. And he combines them in that chapter, mainly focusing in the first part on the destruction of Jerusalem, but it still has ties into uh, what takes place before the second coming. And here you see him doing the same thing. Notice what he says. Uh, Sorry, I'm in Matthew now. The wind's taking care of my Bible for me. Luke chapter 23. And it says that uh, verse 30, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Now, do you know when that happens? I I believe it's quoting from uh, Isaiah here, but this, this happens later on in Revelation, where it refers to specifically that this is what is going to take place when Jesus comes back and and people aren't ready to meet him. And so they're crying out to the rocks to fall on them. That the whole of society implodes to such an extent that they recognize that they just don't want to live anymore. And he's saying what takes place in Jerusalem is a parallel to what's going to take place at the end of the world. So the disciples actually weren't totally off in that there's a parallel between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. They just didn't recognize that there were thousands of years between the two. But notice how he ends this. What does he say to them? If they do this in a, what is it? The green wood, then what will be done in the dry? I just want you to take away that as a principle today because I want to take it away as a principle the things that I do, the way that I act in a green wood is only going to be magnified for evil in a dry wood. And things aren't getting better on this planet. I don't know if you've noticed that. Things are getting worse. They're getting rougher. And, and if I can't handle life today, it's good that I'm realizing that. Because <laughs> the Jews thought that they could handle it. And that was their entire problem. They tried to handle it themselves and they ended up in a world of hurt. But I need to recognize today that I need a Savior. I need to be saved out of my condition in the green wood so that when the dry wood comes, when the drought comes, when the difficulties come in my life, when my patience is really tried, I have 
something that can see me through. So how in the world do we become a green tree? So I just want you to take a minute and look up. Look up at this incredible redwood that's right here, or the, or the ones that are, are right over there. It's incredible that we have these redwoods, not just because we can sit here and enjoy the shade, although that's our primary thankfulness for them right now, but they are beautiful trees. In fact, I'll tell you a story. I, I came to the parking lot, I think it was about a year ago, and there's a guy in the parking lot with these virtual reality glasses on and a remote in his hand, and he's going like this, as if he's really flying around somewhere. So I go over to him, and, and he's just about done, and he takes his goggles off, and he's like startled that I'm there. Uh, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm, I race drones. My drone, it goes 100 miles an hour. It's not like one of the fancy drones that stabilizes themselves, but it, it's flying at 100 miles an hour, and it has a camera on it, so I'm actually watching, and I watched his videos later. He's like diving on all kinds of things, but he said, I love to come to your church because it's the only place in this county that I know of that has these gigantic redwood trees. And I love to dive up and down them and just feel like I'm actually flying around the redwood trees. These trees are massive. They're huge. Just look up at them. And, and this is small compared to what the real coastal redwoods are like, right? We're in a climate where these redwoods don't have as much moisture maybe as they need and they're younger trees. These trees, you know how high they can grow? The tallest one was found in 2006. Do you know how tall it was? Close, very close. I believe, at least there may be another one even higher, but it's close to that. It's 379 feet was the highest tree that they found. Incredible, massive trees. They grow so tall, and their cousins are the sequoias over in the Sierras. These massive behemoth trees, they don't grow as tall, but they are huge. And, and these trees, they can grow as much as 3 to 10 feet per year. They can get taller and taller and taller, but... In a drought, and maybe when we have as little water as we get around here, they'll grow maybe more like an inch a year. They can conserve. Incredible trees that they are, but, you know, if you look around, there's more than just the tree here. Sometimes we just think about this beautiful tree, but if you look anywhere around here, you'll notice that there are roots spreading out all around this tree. And, and these roots go out about 100 to 150 feet from the tree. They... Redwoods are a little different in that they don't go really deep with their roots, but they spread out wide with their roots. And they have this, this firm ground that's going out. And, and while we look at this tree here that is standing up straight and tall, we need to recognize where its source of strength comes from, where its nutrients come from. What, what is it that makes the redwood such a beautiful and grand and great tree? Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 17. Now, Jeremiah, interestingly enough, do you remember that he was prophesying to Jerusalem saying, hey, a king's going to come to Jerusalem, he's going to ransack the city, and he's going to take you captives. And so they hired false prophets against him. They, they did everything to deny what Jeremiah was saying. Similar to how Jesus is warning about the destruction of Jerusalem. And look at what Jeremiah has to say to those who are facing this destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Now, do you remember last week, those of you who were here, we talked about a tree that withered. Why did it wither? 
Because Jesus cursed it. And that was a representation of, of the Jewish nation and their pretentious religious forms, their head knowledge without an actual transformation of heart and the way that they treated people. And, and Jesus cursed that fig tree and it became withered so that nobody could eat from it again. Well, here you have it saying, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And the word there for man is like a strong man. A, a guy that's, today we would say he's hit the gym a lot. Really strong guy. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And notice what it says, and makes flesh his strength. And literally the word for flesh is his arm, his strength. Now, if you've been working out, if you're a really strong guy, what else do you rely in but your arm and your strength? You've, you're a strong man for a reason. But it says cursed, the withered, the one that, the one that relies on what he can accomplish, he's going to end up, well, let's see what it goes on to say, whose heart departs from the Lord. Okay, so there's two options. There's trusting in yourself and departing in heart from the Lord. Right? So his heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. That's a miserable picture, isn't it? He's going to become like this dry shrub in the desert that there's nobody out there and it's just a dead, desolate waste. But then there's a better picture. Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. You see the exact opposite. One is trusting in himself. The other is trusting in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Here's a picture of a a tree that spreads out its roots so that it has constant nourishment that's coming up and continuing to give it life even in the midst of a drought. And the Bible again and again gives us this picture that what we need is to be rooted in a way that gives us nourishment that keeps us green when the drought times come, when the difficulties are there, when things aren't as smooth as they should be. And Huss became a man who trusted more and more in Jesus to the place where he was headed to a trial with a pope and an emperor. And on the way to that trial, he wrote all of these letters to, uh, some were to his followers, some were uh, to fellow priests, basically saying, hey, I'm not probably going to come back from this, but I want you to know it's okay. I'm trusting in the Lord. He brought me to this. And even if I die, even if I'm, quenched even if i'm taken out of the picture you can continue to trust in god and he went forward boldly simply trusting in god how does a person do that how do you when facing death when facing persecution when facing the world falling apart i believe it starts with a little test today it starts with recognizing our need for jesus today look at how jeremiah 17 continues verse uh it says that it It won't grow anxious in the drought in verse 8. And it says, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Then look at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, today, I look at the world and I want answers. I want to know the solutions to the world around me. But what the Bible tells me is that my heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And I can't trust it. 
I may want to say, oh, this group of people has the answer, or this person has the answer, or this friend is right. I may want to look at all of these answers for the solutions, and that's exactly what the Jews were doing, except for that they walked away from Jesus. Jesus, who wanted to shelter them under his wings, wanted to be their everything, who wanted to show them a different way of living. They didn't want that. They chose Barabbas, the one who would fight for them, the one who was a murderer, the one who was political in what he wanted to do. They chose him instead of Jesus. And Jesus wept over them. (laughs) He said, if only you knew what's going to take place because you're rejecting my loving offer to care for the needs that you have in your life. Notice how it goes on to say that, that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. We can't trust our own discernment about the times that we're living in. But then it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And then look at verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. He says, if you will thirst for me, if you'll thirst for my knowledge, if you'll look for what I can offer, I understand hearts. I understand the, what's going on in the world. I am overseeing world events. And even though it's out of control, even though there's violence, even though there's oppression, even though things, there's lawlessness is increasing, I can help you to endure in love. I can show you the path of life. The psalmist said it this way, Thy word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. How do we get to know and and, and get quenched of our thirst quenched by this God. Look at Psalm chapter 1. The Bible uses this, this idea of being rooted many different times. But here you find Psalm chapter 1, the beautiful picture of what God wants for us in order to be able to handle the drought that's coming on this planet. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Are we listening to ungodly people in our lives? Are we taking counsel from people who are not worried about biblical principles? Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. That's such a beautiful picture. I mean, this is a guy who's, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's not frustrated that he woke up, but instead he's, ah, I'm going to think about the law of God. What does he see there? I mean, he's talking about the Torah, the the first five books of Moses. I mean, those are some of the toughest things to read in the Bible. But it was a revelation of the character of love of God as best they could understand it. He shall be like a tree. This is how it goes to that, that metaphor of being rooted. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also will not wither. And whatever he does will prosper. So no matter what he faces, he's going to be able to continue because he's meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. The ungodly are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You see the contrasting picture. On the one hand, there may be a tree that looks really good on the outside. It looks like it's doing well because the rains are there. And I mean, Maybe that's the way eucalyptus trees are in our county. Have you ever noticed that they're happy unless a storm comes along and then suddenly we have all these eucalyptus trees that are are falling down around us? But a tree that has roots that last, a tree that is meditating on the Word of God day in the light, 
day and night, is able to stand through the storms. And redwood trees are able to live thousands of years. I mean, some of the trees in our redwood forest, they estimate, you know, predate Jesus on this planet. Isn't that incredible to think about? For 2,000 years, you have a tree that's able to survive the wildfires, that's able to survive the floods, that's able to survive everything that's happening here, earthquakes, because of its root system. And, and the Apostle Paul picks up this picture in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17 in this beautiful prayer that he's praying for them to receive the gift that Jesus is longing to give them. He says, I bow my knees before every, before the Father with, from whom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. You see what, where he wants them to be rooted and grounded? Where? In love. And, and in the Bible, God is described as a just God. But he's not described as justice. He's described as a merciful God. But he is not described as mercy. But God is described as not just loving, but he is love. And John, the apostle who was closest to Jesus, said, those who live in love live in God. And if our Christianity does not lead us to be more loving people, then it's not Christianity. We're following false Christ. We're believing in false things. If it doesn't lead us to treat our neighbor as we want to be treated, then it's a farce. And what happens in the green tree is only going to get worse in the dry tree. And as you look at the book of Revelation, you see what happens to that church that becomes apostate, that harlot Babylon, that all of the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And everybody's following her. But she's not following the principles of the Bible. She's not following love. And we have to stand on the Word of God. That's what we have to filter absolutely everything that comes to us through. That's the only way that we can stand. And I want you to know that when you ask me a question, that's if, if I don't direct you to the Bible for an answer, then please tell me that I failed in my job. And if we as a church, when, when we're making uh, plans for the future and we're doing things, if you can find anything in the Bible that contradicts what we are doing as a church, please come and tell our leadership because I believe all of them feel the same way that we want to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But this is the only filter through which we can view the world around us right now because everybody else, the majority of people are not getting up and reading their Bible before they tell you what's happening in the world today. This goes for both sides. I'm not talking to one side or the other today. I'm saying that we are listening to people and we're getting passionate about subjects that are not based on the Bible. And we have got to be firmly rooted in Jesus. Let me give you an example. Just down the road from us, Atascadero, this past week, a white gentleman walks into, I believe it was Rite Aid, and a black man working in there says to him, you need to wear a face mask in this store. And he begins to use all types of vulgar profanity, specifically racist vulgar profanity, right here in our own town of Atascadero, over a face mask. I challenge you to find in the Bible where it talks about face masks. But I will show you in the Bible 
where it talks about following what our government has asked us to do. Now, this goes both ways, believe you me. Uh, this, this applies in every situation in our lives. And what we have to say is, what is the filter that we're looking through? Are we looking through the filter of the Bible? Are we looking to Jesus and Jesus only? There's something else about redwood roots that's really, really incredible. You see, these redwood trees, their roots spread out about 100 feet from here. Uh, but you'll notice that we have a few other redwoods that were, are within 100 feet uh, of this redwood tree. But in most redwood forests, there are, it's an entire grove of redwoods and they're all packed in close together. And what they say is a, a solitary redwood, a solitary sequoia is not going to survive for thousands of years. But what happens is they have special roots that intertwine with the roots of each other and they're so interlocked and intermeshed and they're able to draw nutrients together out of the ground and they're able to pull up more resources together. And you'll even see that young uh, redwoods, we have some around the, the redwood over there, they begin to sprout up right around the base of a redwood because they're drawing on that same nutrient chain that comes from all of these roots that are spreading out and interconnecting these trees. And friends, what the law of God boils down to is to love God and to love my man, fellow neighbor, people around me as myself. I need you. We need each other. And we need this community. We, as a nation, are growing cold in our love because lawlessness has increased. People are, are filled with hatred. People are, are ransacking stores. They're mistreating off police officers. All of these things are simply signs of people reacting against God's law. Both are signs of that. And what we need to know is, are we standing on the word of God? So Huss, as he goes to, the, uh, to face the, the Pope, he's challenged to re- refute what he has to say. Is he going to deny what he, what, he is, what he said? And he said, no, I've, I've only taught about Jesus, and I can't go back on this. But Huss wasn't alone. He had a friend named Jerome. And Jerome also came, and he's like, I'm going to come and I'm going to save him. But he realized there was nothing he could do. And so Jerome began to leave Prague, or leave the city where, where they had this council. But he was caught, and he was captured. And as he was captured, he was put in a dungeon. He was there for an entire year. Now, during this time... Huss was taken to the stake, and he was burned at the stake. And as he was burned at the stake, historians tell us, the historian Diabne tells us that he was singing hymns as he was burned at the stake. Talk about still being a green tree in the midst of a drought, that leaves do not wither. But Jerome, when it came down to that moment, he was finally called out of prison. He's been totally mistreated. And they say, will you deny the teachings of Huss and of Wycliffe? And he said, yeah, I'll deny all of their unholy teachings, everything except for their holy teachings. And so they let him live, and they took him off, and they put him in the dungeon, and he had no peace. He recognized the fact that he had just denied the only thing that mattered, the only thing to cling to. He had tried to look out for his self-preservation rather than relying on the Word of God. And so, a while later, they ended up calling him back. 
to the council again. And they grilled him a little bit more. They weren't quite contented. They want a, a, a fuller recantation of his teachings. And he said, you know what? I recant of my recantation. I take it all back. I'm standing on the word of God. I'm standing on the truth of who Jesus Christ is. I want to be rooted in love. And Jerome also went to the stake himself and was burned at the stake. But I love how the historians record what takes place as the flames are kindled for both of them. It says this, Even his enemies were struck with his heroic bearing. A zealous papist described the martyrdom of Huss and Jerome who died soon after and said, Both bore themselves with constant mind when their last hour approached. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. When the flames rose, they began to sing hymns. And scarce could the vehemency of the fire stop their singing. You see the kind of experience that they had, how deeply rooted they were in Jesus. That even when facing death, when facing persecution, when facing mistreatment, they continued to love like Jesus loved until the end. Love never fails. You know, I've been learning something with my daughters just recently. Olivia is, has become obsessed with something. So obsessed, in fact, that she'll do it in her sleep. You see, we'll be, we'll be, anytime either I or Leah leave the room, she'll be saying, Mama, Dada, and she's, if we're all together, she's going through a roll call. Even with grandma and grandpa are there. We were on a walk here this week and, and she says, Mama, Grandma, Papa, Dada. She wants to make sure that everybody's there, that they're all together. And yesterday morning I was rocking her. Uh, it was like 5.45, hoping that she would sleep a little bit longer before we woke mom up. And in her sleep, suddenly she's going, Dada. Ah, for Abby. Mama. Oh. She's taking a roll call to make sure that we're all there. Last night, we were sitting around the table. They wanted to sit in the adult chairs, and I sat them there in the chairs, and she began to do it again. Ah, yeah, that's, that's, that's where Abby's. She's in her chair. Oh, yeah, that, that's your chair. Then she looked over at my chair. Dada, yeah. And then looked at the chair right next to me. Mama. That's right. Mama wasn't there. She was, um, and wasn't there at that moment. And then I realized something. I got a stool and I put it right there. And I said, and who sits there? They just looked at me with that blank look. Of, what are you talking about, Daddy? You're crazy. Can you say, Jesus? Jesus. Jesus. That's what I want for my girls more than anything else. To take inventory in their heart throughout the day, like Livy does of her family, to say, is Jesus, is my heart open to Jesus right now? Dada, Mama, Jesus. Everything's good if Jesus is there. Because He's longing to shelter us under His wings. If only Jerusalem had accepted the care that He wanted. He said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto Me and I'll give you rest. Come rest under the shade. You know, you who are right under this tree are in the perfect spot. Did you know that redwoods can shed up to 500 gallons of water per day? Don't worry, we don't live in that wet of a climate. 
500 gallons of water, that's like turning your shower on for four, maybe four and a half hours. Just constantly coming off of here. They, somebody told me that underneath a redwood tree can be up to 20 degrees cooler. And we get to rest in the shade of this tree. And that's what Jesus invites us to. And he invites us to become that to the world around us where we become places of refuge from the craziness in the world around us right now. Places where love can be seen no matter if we disagree with the people around us. And friends, I'm not here to tell you I have this. I'm here to tell you this is what I need. This is what you need. Because this is the only thing that will see us through in the end. I'm thankful that my daughters just want to be together. I'm thankful that we have the example of redwoods, that their roots constantly intertwine. But I'm thankful more than anything that what Jesus wants is for every single person. He's not willing that any should be lost, but that all should come to a knowledge of salvation. And he's provided for it full and free. And he wants for you to drink freely from the water of life. Drink in of his love for you. So, as I conclude today, you remember last week, and if you missed it, it's always on our YouTube channel. You can go and watch, or not always, but last week's was for sure, and hopefully a lot of the times it is. But last week we talked about a man who went to, well, he has two adopted uh, kids, and then he has two more who are only had been in his house uh, as um, for 14 months as, as foster kids. And those kids were taken away by their biological dad and they were taken down to Mexico. And he called me on the phone, I told you, and uh, said, I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on this and and I want you to get this letter to Ben Carson and eventually to, to, to the President of the United States. And I'm like, I can't do that. I'll try my best. He's desperate to save an enduring love. Well, I got a text just last night. They were able to go down to the Mexico border yesterday. And he wanted you to know, because he knew that I told you about it. He wanted to thank you for the prayers that you prayed. Because they were able to take their two kids home with them. And he texted me, he said, you know, we had this miracle. A modern day miracle happened. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. The second that they saw us, they raced towards us and they hugged us. And there's going to be two groups of people in the end. Those who are running towards Jesus, just wanting to embrace Him. And those who are crying out to the rocks to cover them. And I want to be a part of those who have my arms spread open because I see how beautiful He is. And I want you to be a part of that. And I want us to help as many other people to see that as possible. Would you join me in just praying to that amazing God of love? Father God, what amazing God you are. How persistent you are with your love. We we put to death your son 2,000 years ago. And yet you've let this planet continue to spiral on because you know that there are more who could be saved by the gift of your life. So God, here we are. Father, too often, I'm a dry tree. And I want to be more deeply rooted in your love I want to find my foundation, my filter for life in the Bible and the Bible only. Father, I pray that that would be the the motive of each of our hearts. I pray that each of us would 
analyze our, our, our standings in this world based upon the Word of God. And that that would be where we give people answers. What does the Bible say? Because that is the book that my friend Jesus inspired. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.